Welcome back to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi Show 29. Thank you for tuning in. I am so happy to have you here with me. The post Breeders' Cup Blues have truly kicked in. What an incredible two days of action it was. My first time on the player show, I, I had a blast. It was incredible. Well, the one and only person that is making his debut on my show today is the man that actually is the reason I'm even a part of this wonderful In The Money Media network in the first place, Jonathan Kinchin. Don't worry, he won't let me forget it. Of course, he needs no introduction, but just um, a quick update on his resume. He finished a very strong second in this year's Breedest Cup betting challenge. A phenomenal feat, and he will tell you all about it on today's show. Like always, follow the In The Money Network on social media, as well as subscribing to the Master Feed and the Talk Racing To Me feed, of course. Find me on Twitter, at Naomi Tucker as well. Tucker, T-U-K-K, no C. Let's go. Well now, JK, first time on my show. Of course, you have your own show. We hear, hear you uh, about a gazillion times on the In The Money Players sort of flagship show. But this, this is different, right? Sorry, it wouldn't be a In The Money production if I wasn't stuck on uh if I wasn't stuck on mute yeah no it is different it's different <laughs> I, I've never been on your show I've listened to it quite a bit and uh um I, I'm gonna take credit I I'm gonna tell you that I am the one who told Pete like hey this girl's awesome we have to get Naomi her own show so <laughs> it's nice to finally be on the show that that uh <laughs> I, I thought would be a good idea <laughs> well, when you put it that way, you make me sound terrible for not having you on earlier. It's it's great that you kind of did a little flashback because that's where I wanted to get started as well. Sort of thinking back how we got to get to work together. I started as a production assistant in Saratoga in 2019 for the New York Racing Association. And you were a newbie as well that year, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. That was my first year too. I think we were, we were there at the same time um, and trying to figure it all out and, and understand what it meant to, to be on that kind of big broadcast and be a part of that. And so um, we would see each other around town. I remember uh, we used to go to bars back then. <laughs> so, I know when the world was still normal. The summer didn't work out quite as well, but we used to be around, uh, you know, be running around and I used to see you on your bike all the time around town. And then uh, further along, we went in the in the summer. We all started hanging out as a crew and and got to know you. And just listening to you talk and your enthusiasm about racing and um, your knowledge from a lot of different aspects. And and I knew you were going to be great. And I haven't told you this before, but I knew you were going to be great when you cornered me in the trailer one day and we sat down for an hour and I walked you through my process, like looking at past performances and whatever. And you were genuinely interested and like taking notes and like paying attention and asking questions. And that's when it snapped to me that you were going to be, uh, be a special part of this industry and this game and not to pack you on the back too much on your own show, but it, I just, <laughs> that's the moment when I was like, damn, she's, she's, uh, she's pretty dope. And this is going to be a good career for her. I remember, I remember that day because you were showing me, you know, how you look at races, your betting strategies. And I also remember, and I still have that, I'm still 
envious and jealous of the wonderful product that you use to handicap the races and you know all the basically the form lines of what you guys do about track biases and everything but we'll get into that a little bit later because I still want to move back to how did you get your gig with the New York Racing Association Oh, well, yeah, that's a fun story. Um, it's funny because that you know us now. This will be funnier to you than if I would have told you this two years ago. But I was hanging out in the paddock bar uh, in the secret spot with PTF, Pete Fornatel, and and we were, you know, carrying on having adult beverages. And I got a DM from someone that works at Naira. Jonathan Fowler was actually who sent it to me. And he said, hey, Tony Alavado wants to meet you tomorrow. Are you around? And I said, yes. And then I opened up my Safari browser and I Googled who is Tony Alivato. Like I, I had no idea. I didn't know who Tony was. And then I saw his role and what he did. And so the next day I went to his office and, and we talked and he said, Hey, we're doing, uh, we're doing, uh, 400, 400 hours on Fox next year. Uh, what do you think? Do you want to do, would you like to kind of, you know, we looking for another handicapper? Would you like to be involved? And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, of course. And he goes, are you going to be here next week? We're going to have you on for an hour to kind of as like a test or, a, you know, figure out if it works. And I was like, yeah, I'll be here next week. And I had no plans of being there the next week. So I'd left, went back to Texas and then came back, did the show. I actually watched it the other day. Um, it was embarrassing, but I watched it. It was, uh, it was me, Wolfie and LaDuca on the roof. And uh, that was my first thing. And he said, you did great. And he goes, are you going to be here in two weeks for the Alabama or whatever it was? And I was like, yeah, I'll be here. <laughs> Another situation. I wasn't going to be there. Came back, did that. And then uh, he said, you did great. Um, we'd love to have you on and I'll, we'll be in touch. And then he flew down to Austin to meet with the Mattress Mac people. We went out for a drink before that. And he essentially offered me the the entire year, you know, and uh and, and that was the, the first year that you were there. That was my first year at, uh, on Saratoga Live in, in Saratoga. That's incredible. I was going to say, that was that year, right? And I remember that you told me a little bit later on that sometimes you still got nervous and sort of how to work through that for yourself. Now, I must admit, I never feel like you're nervous on air. You never, ever come across like you're not your cool, calm, relaxed you know, the JK we know with his cool shirts and his relaxed attitude. Oh, shit. I mean, now I feel comfortable. I don't, I don't worry about it. I don't get anxious. You know, on the big Fox show, because it's so, it's so serious. We know it's so tight. You know that you can't really jack around. Um, I, I don't, I get nervous for that show, but the other shows, you know, I'm, I'm okay at this point now, but, but my first year, I think it's interesting to know. And I think I told you this is like, I used to take note cards. Let me back up. What I went to to uh, Oakland Park for the first time, and I was there with Lafitte Pinkai. I was the first junior. It was the first time we met. The third, not the junior. The third. The first time we had met was was there, and that was kind of cool for me. I used to watch HRTV all the time. So like when Lafitte was on, I, when I met Lafitte for the first time, I was a little bit starstruck, but I was trying to play it cool because I'm <laughs> I, I'm on air with him, so I can't be like. You know, I can't be fanboying. And we hung out and Lafitte was so cool and so professional. And Lafitte was asking me questions before we went on air so that he knew what to ask me when we went on air. And uh, we hung out that time. It was, a, it was a blast. And I felt so confident and comfortable when it was over. And I was like, this is easy. I can do this every day. But someone asking you questions is so much different 
than having to do a stand-up by yourself, which I know that you've experienced uh, last weekend at the Breeders' Cup, which I'm so proud of you of for. And then also like at Laurel, like being by yourself is completely different. So fast forward like three weeks, I go, they send me back to Oaklawn by myself. And I'm thinking I murdered last weekend. I picked the big price horse that ran second with 60 to one shot. People are telling me I'm doing a great job. I'm going to nail this. I got my iPad with this little goofy little, like, little, like, like, you know, in hand holder thing. And I go there by myself and I'm not worried about it. I do my normal preparation and I stand up there and they, they come to me in my ear, which is a very nerve wracking thing when they're in your ear, as you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't really hear yourself. You can barely hear them if you're talking. And they said to me, uh, okay, Jonathan go, you're, or, you know, you know, QJK yeah. one, two, whatever. And, and I'm, I froze. I just oh. froze. I didn't know what to, I, I completely forgot what I had to say. And then I kind of got it together. And then they said, what's your pick five ticket? And this is when I was feeling confident, feeling myself. I realized that I had wrote my pick five ticket on different pages of a PDF in my iPad. So I wrote like the first leg on one page, the second yeah, leg on two Yeah, pages. I know. I Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about here. <laughs> so I have the mic in my right hand, the iPad in my left, and I have to scroll. I'm having to talk through the pick five, but I'm having to scroll with a finger, but I can't take the mic too far away from my face. And I'm just, I mean, it was an absolute disaster. I was mortified. I was like, oh my God, I was so bad. And that was the moment where I realized I needed to start writing my notes on note cards. And then I needed to, when I was doing a pick five, I always write the names out of the horses that I've picked. So that's like my thing in my notes on my computer. I write that. And so like now I can just rattle through it. Now Serengeti Empress, Gamin and Bell's the one. And I'm also going to use bang, 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 rather than trying to like flip through it with the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I learned from that experience and it only made me better. Um, it, it like helped me feel like that slap in the face made me like figure out how I needed to do different. Well, I feel like that's, that's something that everyone kind of goes through. Cause I, I remember like my first time that I was doing a hit in the paddock. And as you mentioned, when you're on your own, all of a sudden you actually have to have something in your head of what kind of points you want to make and which horses am I going through? Too. Actually, I, my trick nowadays, if I'm doing my own thing and I'm talking about a horse in a paddock, I write down on either my hand, I've done that before, or on a sticky note, which horses and in which order I'm going through them. Because sometimes in the middle of talking, I just forget which order I was going to do. So you're talking and you're kind of busy with your talking. And then all of a sudden you have to, you know, switch through horses and switch, you know, scroll through your PDF, which is what I do all the time as well. And you want to do that quite smoothly. So normally I'm talking and I know what I'm talking about. And then I'm already on the next horse that I wanted to talk about. But if I forgot, my, forget my order, <laughs> I've done it before too. So I, that just all sounds so familiar. And being, being at the desk and being out in the field is so much different. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I started doing, and I don't do it anymore, um, not because I'm great, but because I just got more comfortable is I used to take a note card and I would write, you know, the post time of the race and I'd write, and here's one thing I would always do. Cause I used to, I take it personally and I try not to do it. I would write the boys races in blue pin and the girls races in red pin. 
because I didn't want to call a colt a filly or a filly a colt. I didn't want to say he or she. I wanted to mm-hmm. remember the the sex of the horse while I was talking through it. So I would do different colors so that I didn't screw that up. Yeah. And I would write like five, I would write the horse's name. I would write like, um, I would write authentic, loose, um, Baffert, you know, Johnny V faster. And then I would write like improbable, consistent, different running styles, Whitney. So I would write these things where I could, I could glance down and see them. And I would remember that's my talking points. And now that's cause I was panicking. So I needed that to look down to when I was mm-hmm. panicking, but I've gotten to a point now where I don't panic, but it, you know, not that I've got it all figured out, but it, I'm just a little bit more comfortable. I think you get more used to the pressure. So you desensitize to it a little bit and then you're able to actually think in a more clear manner than when you're panicking, because when you're panicking, your brain's not helping you at all. Whereas if you're relaxed, you can think like you're doing, for example, right now, and we're chatting and we're just able to actually, you know, <laughs> say the right words and at least sound half intelligent. Whereas when you're panicking, that doesn't happen, does it? No, I mean, it's it, for a while, I used to think, man, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are watching me right now. And now I don't, I just, I'm sitting next to Andy Serling and, and I'm just hoping he doesn't say something or I got to jump over there and choke him out. That's like... <laughs> that's how my brain works now when back then it used to just be like you know and i'll i'll be honest with you and i'm I'm just you know i'm just being straight up like and and, but i and i'm saying this as a compliment andy does his work and he 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 knows what's going on and if you sit next to him and you're not prepared you always have that fear that he's going to that he's going to dunk on you and and it's, he deserves to do that if you come to the set and you're not prepared. And so I initially started off being worried about that, worried about Andy dunking on me, like he's going to get mad. Mm-hmm. And cause I, you know, but I do the work. I know the replays. I know the trips. I know the horses. Yeah. I know the trainers. I might mess up a stat. I might not know that so-and-so was so-and-so's brother back in 1987, but the meat of the situation and I, I get it. And he, so he's never really, you know, he'll dunk, he'll try to dunk on me about a couple of things, but I'll, I'll dunk right back on him if I have to. Well, you have to have a bit of banter and a bit of fun on air and maybe also stand your ground, right? Oh, of course. Of course. Well, let's get back to, cause I wanted to talk about this year's BCBC in which you were super successful, but actually before we do that, I wanted to chat about last year because you were walking around with a certain backpack last year when I saw you. So I would like you to share with our listeners, did you compete in the BCBC or what did you play and how did it go for you last year? Because I just have memories here, like (laughs) painting the picture for the listeners, some fancy (laughs) after party in LA and JK and I are strutting about and JK has this ridiculously valuable backpack on his back that you really can't make this up. Tell, tell us how it all went down. <laughs> That's a good question, Naomi. Um, so, <laughs> so last year I played in the BCBC and I decided to bet uh, the my entire bankroll on Dennis's moment. We all know how that went. Didn't go well in that race. Uh, Stormed the court one. Dennis's the moment. Dennis's moment like fell on his face. So Friday was a disaster. But uh, the nature of, of a horse player is you, you dust yourself off. You try again. The next day we wake up, 
we're, we're out of the BCBC, but we're still hanging out, having fun. We're hanging out in the trophy lounge, which is like my favorite place to be in at the Breeders' Cup on a, on a normal time. Uh, we were in the table next to Steven Jackson, uh, Avery Johnson, the, the, the basketball coach was behind us. Walker Bueller was in front of us. It, it was just like a great situation. Um, I was with my friend, Richard Lewis, who played in the NBA for quite some time. And I'm obviously as the horse player of the group, I've been contracted to come up with a pick six ticket. So I, it was a carryover that day. And so I'm looking through and I come up with the ticket and I said, look guys, the the way I want to play it, if we're playing it smart, I don't ever play caveman. I, I want to hit my top run for five, six, seven, eight, nine, $10. I want to hit my alternatives for five bucks and I want to hit my saver types for a dollar or, or 50 cents or whatever it might be. I said, guys, if we're going to play this and be like 3,500 bucks. And uh, I said, it's too much. We got beat up yesterday. Like I'm out. Like I'm not going to do it. And Richard being the action guy that he is, he says, nah, man, I'll take half. Let's just do it. And I was like, all right, fine. We'll, we'll just do it. And so uh, our friend Dominic Savitas, who owns uh, Venetian Harbor and a couple of other random friends kind of put in a couple hundred bucks here and there. And I took the rest of it. And, um, I went, we went, we go to the window, we make the wager. And then I call my friend in Vegas. I don't think I've told very many people this part of it. I call my friend in Vegas. I won't say who he is, but he's a famous man <laughs> uh, who, who is a, is a famous guy. We talk about on our podcast all the time. And I said, Hey, put this pick five in for me. I only gave him half of it, not the whole 3,500, but just half of it. Cause I'd had some yeah. money with him from other situations, sports and whatever. And he played it. So we hit it on track for $110,000. And then I hit it by myself for 50, which is another part of the story I'll get to in a second. I hit it for 50 in Vegas. So we go, <laughs> we hit the bet and we go up to cash it and we get it all in cash. And so we put all of hundred and I gave Dom his money cause he was there, but Richard and I, we put all of our money in the backpack. So I think we had like I don't know what the math is on that, like 80, 90, 80, 70, $70,000 in our backpack when we went to the Langham for the after party. And, and I wasn't carrying, I didn't even, I'm such an idiot. I didn't even carry the bag around. I set it like behind this desk, behind hospitality, like the Breeders' Cup of Hospitality, and like set it behind there. Um, and then, so that's the backpack. And then the next morning, PTF and I went to uh, a brewery to do our podcast, like our, our, you know, the, the players podcast to do the wrap up show. Mm -hmm. And on the way there, I told Pete, man, I think I'm gonna go to Vegas tomorrow and get this money and like hang out in Vegas or whatever. And the Uber driver hears me. He says, I'll drive you to Vegas. And, and I was like, all right, uh, $400. He's like, yep. Tell me where to be. And I said, at the hotel at one o'clock, he picked us up and Casey and I went to Vegas and on a, in an Uber and, and picked up the rest of our money. And we had a great time. Great weekend. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. I don't think, yeah, you didn't tell me that you ended up going to Vegas and then pick up the rest. I just knew that the backpack in itself was worth a couple of quid. Yeah. The, the backpack, you know, it's funny though, is Richard and I did well. We hit a, uh, it, at the Derby. We, we had hit, um, back when justify one, we had hit for like $80,000 and, um, we had all this cash. 
We drove all the way from Louisville back to Lexington, where we were all staying, and we went to Goodfellas Pizza. Goodfellas Pizza is famous because Dave Portnoy does the he did the zero point zero review. He's he's since come back and gave it a seven point seven. But we were trying it. We were going our separate ways from Goodfellas, and so we were splitting up the money, and we didn't know how to split it up. And so Richard got a pizza box, and we put his half of the money in the pizza box. Well, he doesn't carry a bag around. He had nothing else. No, he just took it out and he got in a cab with a pizza box with like $40,000 in it. So that was a lot of fun. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm telling you all the good stories. Like I'm not telling you the stories where we left losing 40 or left, left losing 20 or, or the, the breeders cup when accelerate one where I went all in for 40,000 at the end and lost. So I'm not giving you all the good stories. There's, there's some bad ones too. Yeah, but hold on, JK. Knowing you like I do, you would have hedged, right? In that case. No, I did not hedge in that case. We, I had bet, I went, I had 40,000. I went all in in the same situation that I did in this year's Breeders' Cup, where I went all in with the turf into the classic. I singled Enable and I used four horses that were not accelerate and I lost. <sighs> this year, I did it a little bit differently and was able to, to hit it, um, not hit it good enough, but hit it just right enough to get second. All right, that's that's a good segue into this year's BCBC. Let's start at the start because this is a, a a betting competition that not everyone is that familiar with. I I for instance have never played in it, but of course I know about it. How do you qualify? Well, you can. There's a lot of different ways on horseplayers.com where you can you can qualify for. Uh, you know, paying playing a hundred ninety five dollar contest, you got to be the best of thirty. Or there's a lot of ways you can qualify for the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge from a financial standpoint. It's different from the NHC. The NHC you have to qualify for. You cannot buy in the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge. You can show up with your ten thousand dollars on the day, and you can play. You don't have to qualify for it. But because it's a big price tag, a lot of times players will try to qualify for it. So. Um, it's a great contest. The rules of the contest are it's a $10,000 buy-in. $7,500 is your bankroll that you will be live betting with. $2,500 goes into the prize pool. On Friday, you have to bet three of the five Breeders' Cup races for $600. You can bet 27 races that day if you want. Well, that's not 27. You can bet every race at Keeneland that day. Mm -hmm. But you have to bet three Breeders' Cup races, $600. If you're an action junkie, you can bet them all, but you still have to make your minimums. On Saturday, same thing. You can bet them all, but you have to bet seven of the nine Breeders' Cup races for $600 on Saturday. Those are required minimums, 10 of the 14 Breeders' Cup races. And um, it's a two-day contest. And essentially that $2,500 that goes into the middle, that's the prize pool. That's what we're all playing for. And then you can turn your bankroll into whatever you turn it into. You can walk away when you want, or you can walk away with zero, which I have done every year since 2014 until this year. But if you, with your bankroll, whatever you get in your bankroll, can you walk away with that as well? Absolutely. At any point. So my, uh, my total Marshall Graham, the, the winner, a good friend of mine and a, a friend of uh, the in the money network, he walked away with 171 bankroll and then I think 325 um, in his prize pool for his prize money. I got 161 in my bankroll and 215 in the prize money. So I, I cleared 377. He's over 500 and uh, it was a, it was a fun weekend. 
<laughs> I can imagine. I'm just, you can't see, I'm shaking my head here. Am I talking about cashing it? Let's go back to when you said you can turn up on the day with $10,000 and buy your way in. Are there many people that do that? Yeah, no, I, I would think that there was 400 and something people in the contest this year. And actually, I, I that, you know, they were down a little bit. They weren't, they weren't an uphill growth. The contest was, um, and last year, I think they may have had four, 60, 70, 80. I might be making that number up, but they went down just a little bit this year, but not much, but just a little bit, they went down. So yeah, there's, there's that many people. I would say more, I would say, I would say more than half buy-in more than half. Okay. So what kind of this kind of this is a bit of an interesting question because I'm I'm sure you can give me various ways uh, as an answer. But what kind of people go and play the BCBC? Are we talking about you know hardcore horse players, or you say the guys that turn up with their ten grand because they want to be a part of it, or what kind of people does this competition attract? I think it brings a lot of people. I think it brings guys that that that, that turn a, a twenty two dollar entry. Um, into a $165 entry into a $10,000 entry, right? Playing on horse players. I think it brings people like uh, Dave Portnoy, I know was playing. Uh, Marshall Graham is an economics professor at Rhodes College. Myself, you know, uh, the TV thing. And then uh, Eddie Olchek played, Matt Bernier. Um, I know guys that are lawyers. I know guys that are doctors. I know guys who are degenerate gamblers. I know guys who are... Um, just, you know, guys and gals from all walks of life. It's just people that, that, uh, have either saved the money to play the 10,000 because it's the greatest contest, in my opinion, that's out there, um, because of the quality of racing and the size of the parimutuel pools. You know, um, one of the plays that I made, and we can get to that as I bet $40,000, uh, at some point, uh, late in the contest on Monomoy girl, I couldn't do that in any other setting outside of the Kentucky Oaks or, um, or the Breeders' Cup that wouldn't move the, 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 the odds too much that it was, it was problematic. So it's all types of people. All types of people play in this contest, and, and that's what makes it fun. You know, um, uh, there, uh, there was a champion back in 2015, a guy by the name of Tommy Massis. Uh, he, had, he bet $5,000 on an exacta in the turf with found – and golden horn and he was quoted after of saying i have less money in my checking account than the five thousand i bet in that contest and he walked away with over i'm assuming four hundred thousand dollars so there's lots of different people walks of life that show up for these contests which really makes it extra special and you you mentioned the rules before what kind of strategies can you and do you employ because this is obviously not a pick and pray so you can be more flexible and like you mentioned you you put 40,000 on monomoy so that's obviously something you can do as your bankrolls growing and i know that the term for that is you know life bankroll strategy how do you work with that yeah i mean you know i'm i'm i think marshall and i both are a little bit different i mean i i, I think the difference is when you ask what type of people are players like the people that that uh that have uh uh started with $25 and they get to the 10,000, they work that up to 40,000. It's just hard in those settings that I completely understand. It's hard. Um, and even Marshall Graham is, is, is explained this. It's hard for me to wager a car on a horse. You know, when I close my eyes and I think $40,000, I could buy, I could buy a car. I can't bet mm -hmm. it on a, on a four legged animal running in a semicircle. I think that the difference of the people that I know that have won this contest, I mentioned Tommy masses, 
we don't treat it like it's, I don't, in this contest, I don't treat it like it's money. I treat it like it's bullets in a war and I'm trying to win the war. Um, and it's very similar to an approach that I think you could treat in like tournament type of poker. You don't treat it like dollars. You treat it like bullets in a war because if you treat it like dollars, you'll never make the correct decisions that are necessary for you to get yourself the best chance to win. There's a lot of players that will come in. They'll bet their $600 minimums. Uh, there was a guy a couple of years ago that, that just bet $600 cold tries in 14 races or, or 10 races or whatever. He was simply trying to catch cold tries. And that was his, that was his strategy to catch one cold try, turn mm -hmm. it into a big score. And if he didn't hit it, he didn't hit it. Um, and so I, you know, my approach is I want to simplify the game. I do not want it to be a 14 race situation for me. I want to, find three or four spots that I feel strongly about. And I want to try to develop enough money in a smart, efficient, safe, thoughtful way to get to those opinions and let those be my risk. I have no interest in betting my whole contest on bells, the one to try to win the Philly and Mare sprint. And then I win. I prefer to safely bet around those spots and lean on horses like Monomoy girl or Nick's go or authentic and probable Tom's the ta uh, Tarnawa. I want to lean on horses like that. Golden Powell. I made a significant, not a significant, but I made a little bit on, I have no interest in, and I had long opinions, right? I, I have long opinions throughout the day. I thought Frenze fire was extremely live, but if I would have based my entire tournament around him, he ran third and sure. Maybe I could have tried to hook them up and like trifectas, but I didn't like Whitmore. So now suddenly that opinion's out the window. Yeah. I like to try to hook my opinions up with things that are very likely, but I I'm aware that I have to get my bankroll to a point where those likely opinions actually mean something. So that means you're trying to build it up and you hope you, you hope that your strong opinions are more towards the end of the tournament. Cause otherwise you don't have the bankroll to actually go in hard. Right. Well, I mean, I bet, I mean, look, where the races lay is important. Um, like I said, I, I went all in on Friday with Dennis's moment and lost. The year that I was in position to win it back in, at Churchill Downs, I was 2018, I think. I had bet $16,000 essentially on doubles, fading Serengeti Empress in the juvenile Phillies and singling newspaper of record. Then I got a bankroll and I slowly lost it, slowly built it back up. City of Light was very helpful, and then I could fire away. So I don't care where my opinion lie. I, I I will take it where it is. I don't need it to be the last race. However, to win this contest, you have to have some sort of opinion in the last to, to try to pick up some pieces unless you're just far, far away because there's 424 people behind you that have saved 100, 200, 300, 5,000, 2,000, 7,000, 10,000, 12,000. They're going to bet every single darn combination there is out there to come catch you. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of have an opinion in the last race. And so I always just try to get in a position in the last race where I can at least just catch something that fits, you know, into my opinion. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how you you know, went through the two days of the Breeders' Cup and what you ended up doing. Now, I know that you've gone 
all over this with your own podcast. But if you can find, like, if you can explain to us in a simplified manner how your day unfolded on the Friday and then on the Saturday, uh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, you know, my, my Friday situation, um, and, and, and you mentioned this, and, and if people are interested, Marshall Graham and I did an hour and a half when we went through every single one of our, essentially every single one of our plays. It's on the Any Money Media Network. It's on our YouTube page. We have video with it and stuff. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to like fall into all the details here because it's, it's, it's kind of rabbit hole-ish, but I'll give you the, the, the base. Um, I had a plan on Friday that I was going to wake up with $7,500 on each entry on Saturday. And my plan to do that was I was going to bet $600 to win on Golden Pal. I was going to bet $600 to win on Aunt Pearl. And I was going to bet $600 to win on um, Jackie's Warrior. That was going to fulfill my three minimums on Friday. And if I could hit one of them, I'd be okay-ish. If I could hit two of them, I would make some money. If I hit three of them, I woke up feeling smart on Saturday morning. Well, I do all my work before I get to the racetrack. So I'll have a beverage or two. I was excited. It was Friday. I bet a thousand on golden pile. <laughs> so obviously that went well. I hit that. And then I was feeling myself even more. So then instead of betting the 600, I said I was going to bet on, on, on Aunt Pearl. I bet $600 worth of doubles on Aunt Pearl into Jackie's Warrior. So although I was right about Aunt Pearl, I I blew that on the Jackie's Warrior thing. But I will say this. I was alive for $12,000 on those doubles into Jackie's Warrior. So that would have been great. But obviously it didn't unfold. The next morning I woke up. I had $6,900. Um, the day starts rolling. I get there right before the the, the sprint. Uh, the turf sprint. And I made a decision that I needed to build up my bankroll. And, um, I felt like I needed to get to a point where I could bet a lot of money on Monomoy girl to get to a point where I could then make a move on Tarnawa into the classic because I didn't, I did not like the Philly and mayor turf. I did not like the mile. I did not like the sprint. I di I didn't have opinions in those races. So I, I, I had no choices where I was going to move. And I ended up moving in the, uh, in the, uh, in the turf sprint. I went all in and I into Nick's go and a little bit of complexity. I was alive after glass slippers won. I was alive to Nick's go for 42,000 complexity for 21,000 Nick's go wins. I hit 42. I bet the minimums that I had to bet in the Philly and mirror turf. I missed in the sprint. I missed in the mile I missed. And then I bet 40, 39,000 on uh monomoy girl because i bet like 1700 on cc just in case i like cc a little bit i didn't want to get mm -hmm. snapped by her got up to eighty thousand. bet it all in on four by four weighted doubles i used magical uh tarnawa channel maker and mogul into tis the law tom's the ta um improbable and authentic and I it was weighted. And so Tarnawa wins. I was alive to Tis the Law for 124,000, Tom's Atta for 235,000, Improbable for 293,000, and Authentic for 161,000. Authentic gets he wins. I get 161,000. And my good dear friend Marshall Graham gets hits the exacta for 7,500. He gets to 170,000. And he, uh, he, he, he snaps me for about a hundred thousand dollars there. 
Well, you did a really good job describing everything in a nutshell. As you mentioned, go JK plus one if you want to know you know all the details of how the day unfolded folded for the both of you. Because obviously, phenomenal result at the one two there. And you mentioned you got to the track and you do all your work beforehand. So where do you go to watch your races? Do you have a hangout? Do you place your bets or something? Do you, are you superstitious? Do you have to be in a certain spot? It's funny. I'm not superstitious. I'm just like a little stitious. <laughs> so like, you know, I mean, so here's the thing. In, in that situation, we were hanging out in like that second floor kind of sports bar area. We had three tables kind of pulled to the side with a group of people. We were staying in that spot and I'm at the Breeders' Cup. I am not going to watch it on TV. I'm at the Breeders' Cup. Yeah. And I am very aware of the fact that a lot of people weren't able to be at the Breeders' Cup. So I was surely not going to watch it. So uh, from the, on a TV. So I would go outside and there was these grandstand seats that were like blocked off. They, they would shut down like a row, row off, row on, row off, row on. And I would go to the, we would go up there and we would sit there. Sometimes it was me and three other people. Sometimes me and four other people. We would just sit in those seats spread out and we'd watch the race. The thing about it is like, God bless Keeneland. It's my favorite. It's one of my, it's, it's definitely my top three racetracks. Keeneland, Santa Anita, Saratoga, top three. Saratoga wins, Santa Anita and Keeneland can fight it out for the rest. But their screen in the infield is not great. It's not high quality. So it's hard to see because the sun was kind of, but I just was going to ride it out at that point. I didn't care. So I watched all the races on Saturday from there. And we, you know, we kept saying we got to go back to the spot, but we were switching rows. We were switching orders of seats. At one point, PTF said, wait, were you sitting on the left of me or the right of me? Oh, no. And I said, and I said, if Nick's go doesn't win, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we, you know, we, uh, so yeah, just a little stitious, same idea. I wasn't going to change up where I watched it from, but, uh, but you know, it doesn't have to be exact science. It sounds like a fun day. Anyway, now going back to the nuts and bolts of handicapping, this is something I actually wanted to ask you a while ago and I kept forgetting. Handicapping at the elite level of races, I feel like it's very different from, for example, when you're doing the day-to-day kind of, you know, Naira Fox shows. How do you deal with a race whereby the variables or the differences between the horses, including the speed figures, including the levels they've been running at, are so minute? Is that the races that you kind of shy away from or or what what do you look for because it is especially when they're running at the highest levels we're talking about mere inches here when it comes to finishes yeah i mean the you know for me um i'm so much more confident and so much more um uh, likely to be aggressive in the breeders cup the bigger races right um i'm trying to think of an example Look, if you're looking at a race on a Thursday at Aqueduct, uh, you know, Rudy just claimed one off of Linda. You got to play that game. Is the horse going to improve? Is the horse not going to improve? You you have to play the game where the horse was eased last time. Horse going to win, not going to win. You got to play the game of, is this horse going to like trying the turf for the first time? Uh, You got to have the, you know, the horse is switching to maker, stretching out on the grass. You got to play that game. Uh, you got, there's so many things you have to try to work through on a Wednesday or a Thursday at Aqueduct. You don't play that game in the Breeders' Cup. 
you just don't play it. It's, 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 uh, you, you know what Tom's the Taz going to do. He's coming in off a layoff. Is he going to be fit off the layoff? It's a simple question, you know, and, and you've seen his workouts on XBTV and breeders, Cup, the morning shows a breeders cup, uh, you know, authentic. He, 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 he wired in the Derby, but he didn't in the Preakness and Bob's been yelling at the top of his lungs. They're going to send him. You know, what's going to happen improbable. You've seen him all year. You know who he is. Um, tis the law. He doesn't like the inside, but maybe he'll get out. You know, what's happening in these situations, you know, the horses, you know, the situations. So betting 30,000, 40,000, $78,000 to win a lot more than that in these situations, is significantly easier than trying to juggle all that other stuff I mentioned before. Um, and so I love these races to bet on because, you know, every trainer wants to win. You know, every owner wants to win and, you know, every rider wants to win. And I'm not saying that that's not the case on Thursdays at Aqueduct or at Churchill or at Keeneland or at Santa Anita or at Gulfstream or at Laurel, but there's a lot more to the equation that we don't have the answer to as horse players. And that's why I, I can get down. Don't get me wrong. I'll play a Sunday carryover, a Thursday carryover. I'll do all of that but I feel much more comfortable firing hard on these big race days. Yeah. Well, we know the trainers, we know the players like you mentioned, and at least maybe there are a little bit less unknowns or variables that you can kind of put away. And especially even just seeing, I know that you might not find that as interesting, but I find it super interesting to see the horses train in the morning and just get a feel for them when I've never seen them before. And all I've seen them is, is on you know the TVs, but going to a completely different sort of different question. And this is something that I came up with because um, I had people asking me this. How tough do you find it to assess the European form coming in against the local American horses? Of course, this is always the majority of the time in the turf races. Very rarely sometimes we'll have one running on the dirt. But how do you try and transfer, for example, using speed figures or watching replays? What is your uh, ammo? Yeah, this is, this is a really good question. Um, <laughs> I don't look, look, I, I've always told people like, you know, being a good handicapper, what does it mean? Being a good horse player. I think being a good horse player and a big handicapper is, is accepting the fact that you don't know. And when it comes to those European types, I just don't know. You know, and it drives me insane when people who don't ever look at European racing will pull up the arc, watch the arc, and then try to say, oh, that horse was trying. You shut up. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't know? Dude, you've been watching Aqueduct and Gulfstream all year. You don't know what the hell they're doing in the arc. So I'll be honest with you. I bet $78,000 in a race. This is embarrassing, but I'm being honest. I did not watch Tarnawa's last race. I did not watch Mogul's last race, and I did not watch Magical's last race. What you do as a good horse player is you surround yourself with people who do know, you trust them, and you lean on them. And my my run of people that I leaned on on all the European races, all the races, the turf races with Europeans in them, Craig Burnick, who is a prolific breeder and pays attention to all of that stuff because he has a lot of grass horses um, at Glen Hill Farm. He told me he loved Tarnawa. Uh, Pat Cummings, who spent a lot of times in European, a lot of time in European racing, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. He has an idea of those connections. He can tell you trainers that I didn't even know existed. Um, Nick Luck, who obviously 
doesn't need any introduction. And, uh, and our friend, um, Sean Borman, who did some figure work, he actually did figure work on those races and they mm-hmm. all four told me they love Tarnawa. I, I don't need any more information. I'm using Tarnawa. I don't need to watch Tarnawa's replay so that I can say, oh, that horse quickened. I've got no idea what's going on with the ground. I've got no idea who's in front or behind. I don't know who the trainer is, the rider is, the weather is. I don't know anything. So in those races, I defer to people who know, and I don't I don't need to have all the answers. That's what to me, that's what's being a good horse player is is you take all of the information that's available and you process it. And you figure out a way to sort through it. And when those four guys told me they love Tarnawa, I love Tarnawa too. That's incredible. I actually love hearing that because that is such, that is really honest. That not a lot of people are going to, you know, actually own up and say, I use the people that actually have the knowledge that I perhaps lack or or I'm not as strong in. And I'm going to lean on them. And for, for I mean, for the amount of the wagers that you make, that is not an easy decision. I mean, where, when did you start doing this? Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, but here's the other thing about that though, is that that would have been a dirt race before the classic. I would have been able to swing a lot harder, be a lot sharper. I used magical in my four by four dutched, uh, double. And I probably shouldn't have because what I had heard from all the people that I had been talking to, I didn't necessarily need magical on their opinion. Now magical ran well, but I didn't necessarily need magical. I liked mogul and, uh, and, and Tarnawa more. I obviously respected the idea that channel maker could get loose. So I wanted to have a little saver there. Um, channel maker ran well, ran third, almost one. So the two horses I was thinking about fading oddly enough were magical and, and, and channel maker who ran, you know, second and third and mogul was my big kind of second press there, you know, the second horse I was going to use. And so, um, you know, I, I, it all worked out, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. I lost my $9,000. If I don't use one of those horses, then I'm okay. But what if, what if Tarnawa goes another two, you know, two paths wide and just doesn't quite find, and then one of them wins and I lose $78,000 and then everyone's calling me an idiot. Um, so it is what it is. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I'm glad Marshall won. So it, it works itself out. Well, you did incredibly well. And that's also the reason I finally got you on my show. JK, thank you so much. Uh, I think this is kind of it. I actually can go on for another two hours, but I'm pretty sure you have better things to do. And I need to get back to my, my day job, which is very exciting going back to Laurel Park again. And uh, when will we see you on air again? Yeah, just to be clear, I don't have anything to do but eat ice cream. But... <laughs> Um, well, I was drinking wine to be fair and trying to handicap <laughs> at the same time. I am back on Saturday. Eric Donovan, our friend, Eric Donovan actually sent me a message and said, uh, one fifty to five thirty central time. So I guess I'm on at two fifty to, to six thirty on, uh, on, on Saturday. So I'm back Saturday and Sunday. I'll be back Saturday and Sunday at the, at the big a looking forward to that. Are you going there? Or are you still going to broadcast from your home? Nope, I'll be at my house with no shoes on and uh, probably shorts, sometimes boxer shorts. <laughs> Look, it is what it is. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't stand up. But then again, they still see in the truck whenever you move. Yes, I know. I've thought about that before. <laughs> they do. The they other do. Day, 
The other day I had to do it. So for the people that are listening, uh, I have to do a sound check and like a camera check, equipment check, like two hours before I go on. And uh, I do it with uh, with our friend Danny Glow. And uh, the other day I did it in a robe. And Danny Glow is a little bit thrown off, I think. <laughs> oh, I bet he'll remind you of that a year from now. Oh, I'm sure they took. I'm sure they took a. I'm sure they took a screen grab, and and I'll and I'll be sitting on the desk at Saratoga, and they'll flash it on the monitor. So it is what it is. It, oh God, we ha- it's such a it's such a wonderful team up in New York. I, I do dearly miss them all, and uh, hopefully I'll get back with them soon again. And we get to work together again sh- soon as well. But this was a uh, nice, and it was good to see you over the weekend at the Breeders' Cup. It was a fun weekend for us all. So thank you so much, J.K. Got stuck on mute again. Thank you too, Naomi. <laughs> you got to stop doing that. Where can we find you? Twitter, social media handles? Yeah, Twitter, uh, YouTube Big Hair. Um, Instagram has a lot of pictures of my kids, so I don't let people in there. Uh, what else? Uh, the show. Oh, that's it, really. I guess that's that's about it. I really don't have anything to add here. Let's keep kicking. I will be back at Laurel Park again as of today, Thursday, November 12th. Also, that means I'm about 16 days away from my birthday, but who's counting? We're all getting old, I hope. I'm lining up some very exciting guests for you for the upcoming week, so don't despair. Keep coming back. I hope you enjoyed it, because I had an absolute blast with JK. Ciao, ciao, guys. See you next week.